0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Happy, Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. That was glorious. <laughs> Let's try it again. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. See, that's practice for tonight. I get to go first. And so I want to say I'm thankful for a couple things. Um, just got back from India. I was there for 2 weeks out of this month uh, went to Bangalore we taught uh, Bible survey and then we uh, then we went north and taught uh, in Amritsar on the Holy Spirit it was a great 2 weeks the Lord answered many of your prayers thank you for praying for us it'd been 3 years since I've been to India it was my 36th trip but it'd been 3 years so we're back in the saddle going again January and February so thank you for those prayers But if you're like most of us, Thanksgiving is always a, uh, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? There's uh, good things to remember, but there's also God's uh, tender mercies during time of struggle. Two years ago at this time, we were having a grandbaby who died on the day she was born um, from uh, terminal birth defects. And so this is the way life comes. It comes with uh, the the greatest of joys and then it comes with God's tender mercies in the midst of sorrows and that's what we're going to see in Psalm 63 this morning that's why I picked it is because thanksgiving is built around a normal life one of the big differences between believers and unbelievers Paul says in Romans 1 is that believers have a heart of thanksgiving and unbelievers don't And so we come to give thanks to our maker who gives us glorious seasons, but also sustains us in hard times. So let's stand as we read this psalm together. In fact, why don't we read it together? You ready? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied, shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen and amen. May the grass wither, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stand forever. You can have a seat. So this is one of the great psalms of devotion, along with psalms like Psalm 51, Psalm 111. This is one of the psalms that I have prayed through the most. And uh, King David wrote this psalm while he was in the wilderness. And he was running from his son Absalom. I I thought it might be a blessing to work through this psalm together on Thanksgiving weekend. King David is called the sweet psalm singer of Israel. He wrote many of the psalms in our Bible. But really behind all that, it's our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, who is the true author of the psalms. He is the real psalm singer of Israel. And in the church, he read and worshiped and prayed and sang through these psalms as a a matter of habit and devotion. So, as an under shepherd, I have sought to imitate the master in this. I've spent hours on my knees before the throne of grace, before the throne of God, seeking his face, praying, and sometimes even singing these psalms out loud to him, word for word, back to him. That's why he gave them to us. Other times I've read them one line at a time, using the theme of the psalm to influence my own prayers. I've learned about the majesty and glory and, and and sovereignty of God. I've learned to rejoice and, and to give thanks even in difficult times. I've, I've learned to lament and to pray through pain. I, I've even learned to lament on your behalf. When I get to a psalm of lament to pray for, if I don't feel like I'm struggling, I think of somebody I know that's struggling so I can pray that psalm of lament on their behalf. But more than anything else, I've, I've met the living God as he has revealed himself to me. And so I pray today that you will also see him, and like David, you will rejoice with the king. I have three things that I want to share with you this morning, though I do that with fear and trembling, to break a psalm up into sermon points as a is a fearful thing but there are three phrases so the psalmist made it easy for us the first thing I want you to see is David's devotion in the desert without question David's biggest failure in life was his adultery with Bathsheba that led to a conspiracy of silence and even to the murder of her husband God forgave David, but trouble never left his family after that. In fact, for the one man, that the life that David took, God took four of his sons. That comes from the law where one sheep, if you steal a sheep, you lose four in return. And so that happened to David. And and one of David's sons, Absalom, conspired against him and and tried to take over the kingdom. He managed to gain enough support to run David and his family and his supporters out of Jerusalem. They had to run for their lives, and in order to escape, they had to run to the desert of Judah. And this psalm is traditionally the psalm that David that people believe David wrote while he was in the wilderness running from Absalom. And in the Bible the wilderness or the desert place is the home of evil. It's the symbol of all that's opposite of the kingdom of God. It's the place where demons dwell. It, it was considered to be haunted by ghosts and it was overrun with dangerous wild animals. It's the place God led his people in order to prepare them for the promised land and and even though God was with them the people often acted evilly and and they rebelled and they gave into the evil of the wilderness and the wilderness is where jesus went to be tested adam was tested in a garden jesus was tested in the wilderness adam failed but jesus passed the test for our good and for our righteousness the wilderness is where god sometimes takes his children he sends us to the wilderness to spend some quiet undivided time with him So David is in the wilderness and guess what? He finds God there. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you and my flesh yearns for you. David is in serious and even deadly trouble and yet he knows what really matters. What's really real and that's his relationship with God. That's what's going to last. And, and these are not the words of a man who's hoping to convince God in, a, in, in some kind of a crisis prayer to give him the kingdom back. They are the words of a man who loves and knows God. They're the words of a friend, the words of a son. David calls him my God. It's like when a small child claims ownership of his parents. You know, they'll say, that's my daddy. That's my mommy. And we all smile because it's really cute and and because it's funny and that the parents might belong to a child when we know it's all the other way around. Or or, or is it? Don't I belong to my children as much as they belong to me? If, If David belongs to God, then God also belongs to David. And that's the beauty of the gospel and the covenant we have with our God. That's the very promise that God makes to Abraham and his descendants. He says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. That promise is for us, beloved. That promise is fulfilled through the cross of Christ. So whoever puts their faith alone in Christ alone, we can say with David, we are his and he is ours. Isn't that amazing? And in a dry desert, David is reminded that as thirsty as his mouth might be, his soul is thirstier still. And as much as he might yearn to return to the palace and the comfort of palace life and and the peace of ruling over the kingdom, his body yearns even more to meet with the Lord Jehovah. He he is so overwhelmed with the presence of God, even in the wilderness, he breaks forth into worship and he writes this song. He sang it among God's people while they're in the desert. That's a great grace from God, beloved. And David remembers all the time he spent in the sanctuary with God's people in worship. He says, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. He he remembers that he brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem and set up the tent on the holy mountain and he brought the ark of the covenant and placed it in the holy of holies and he danced before the Lord and led the people in singing and dancing he was a bad presbyterian and he made and he made many sacrifices you know the ark is the centerpiece of of God's abiding presence and David has literally seen the power and the glory of God in the ark and in the tabernacle. So when David ran from Jerusalem, the first thing the priests did is they went and got the ark of the covenant to take it with them as they fled. They didn't want Absalom to get it. But in faith, David sent the ark back to the city. Do you you remember that in the story? Back to its place in the tabernacle. Because he knew that the God of the universe is not constrained to places built by men. He knew that he didn't have to have the ark with him to get God's blessing. And, And most of all, he knew that God, that his God would be out there in the wilderness whether he had the ark or not. You know, over the years... I've met a lot of people inside and outside the church who just don't seem to get the importance and the blessing of course, corporate worship together on Sunday and, and COVID and, and YouTube church has made this more pronounced. And I know there's people on YouTube hearing me say that and, and all those people have said the same thing, pastor, I can worship God on my own, in my own way. You don't have to be in church to find God. And you know What? They're right, but they're only half right. In fact, they have it backwards. The reason that David's worship in the desert is so rich is because of his time with God's people in the sanctuary. That's the foundation of his worship with God. You see, Sunday worship isn't just three songs and and a sermon. In our church, it's five songs and a sermon. When when we gather for praise, God shares his glory with us. He commands us to praise him because he shares himself with us. He abides in our worship. And David is remembering the presence and the power of God as he reveals himself to his people when they worship together. You can't get that on YouTube. Sorry, it just doesn't work. And that's why retreats work. When we retreat and we get alone with God, it's to renew what we have together. But it doesn't work the other way. You see, that's where it's half right. Exclusive time in the desert doesn't give the soul any depth to fall back on. Without the experience of the sanctuary, the time in the desert is just that, time in the desert, dry and weary and lonely it's like being married and you're away on a business trip apart for a week what is it that you remember what is it that you want it's to be back together again right while you're apart that week what you remember is what you have together and here's what Jesus says in the victory chant of psalm 22 put that up there psalm 22 verse 22 Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Jehovah, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, for from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will before before I will perform those, before those who fear Him. Jesus is our worship leader. It says it here. It says it in Romans fifteen. It says it in Hebrews two. That when God's people gather for worship, it's not Joel who leads us. He's just the contemporary leader that right here in our presence, but it's really the Lord Jesus who is leading us in the grand worship that spreads across the cosmos on Sunday mornings together is in every time zone around the world. God's people are gathering to worship and, we, and Hebrews 12 says that we stand in heavenly places. And that's what David remembers in the desert. And then He remembers something else just as important. It's in verse 3. He says that your steadfast love is better than life, so my lips will praise you. That's what he remembers about the sanctuary, that God's steadfast love is better than life. That's what leads him to praise. Now, that's a bold statement, that God's love is better than life. And that doesn't come from a desert relationship with God, but from long hours in the sanctuary, together with God's people, alone in his presence. Worship involves expressions of thanksgiving for hearth and home and God's many gifts, and we'll hear some of those tonight. But this is not the essence of true worship. In fact, there is a kind of gratitude to God for his gifts that has no true worship in it at all. We see it every year at Thanksgiving as even secular people attend parades and make grateful remarks about all that they have. In other words, there are people who love their health and family and job and hobbies and thank God for them, but they don't really love God himself maybe that's you. They don't savor God. And when God is not savored and, and love for the sweetness and excellence of who he is, then he's not worship. That's why David begins with an expression of belonging. He says, you are my God, my soul thirsts for you. This is not primarily a thirst for God's gifts. He had those in the palace. It's a thirst for God himself. David has a heart for God. He has a taste for fellowship with God. And the clear desert night makes that all very clear to him. That what he needs is Jehovah. What we need is King Jesus. And this means that David wanted more. Th- we God more than he wanted life. What a bold statement. And if you want God more than you want life, then you want God more than you want all the joys of this life. Whether more than, more than family or, or health or food or friendship or sex or job satisfaction, or books, or computer games, or social media, or music, or Netflix, or homes, or boats, or beaches, or even Georgia games. Maybe even fishing. Now David's not denying the sweetness of those things. They're sweet indeed. They come from the hand of God. That David is reminding himself that if his heart settles even gratefully on the pleasure of the palace or the glory of Jerusalem and the throne that's there or the joy of the gift and he doesn't yearn for the infinitely greater beauty of the giver, then he's an idolater and he's not a worshiper of God. Now, if you're like me, I don't know that you are, but if you're like me, even after you've enjoyed the glory of worship and the joy of Jesus, then you're tempted to return to the pursuit of that comfort idol and the pleasure pleasure as your chief aim and to surround yourself with God's gifts. So look what David says next. Verse four, he says, so I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David's worship isn't just during the good times of the sanctuary, and it isn't simply foxhole worship in the hopes that the wilderness will end and he'll get his kingdom back. He says, you are my God, and I will love you. My lips will praise you as long as I live. This is what I want, a life of worship and corporate prayer the joy of knowing God together. And this commitment to lifelong worship, beloved, is not because of the fortitude of of David's character, but because God's love is better than life. Imagine that. It's a great gift. It's great grace to feel like that, to want that. And if you don't feel like that, ask God. He'll make it so. And David says, not only will I praise you as long as I live, but I will lift up my hands in your name. And it's at this point that Presbyterians fold up their tents and put their hands in their pockets and head home. I call us pocket Presbyterians because that's where we put our pockets and that's where we put our hands when we sing. I sit in the back so I can watch. Beloved, I'm amazed at how resistant we are to include our bodies in worship. David says, my soul thirsts for you and my body yearns for you. Worship is not either or, but it's a both and. Every week, Joel leads us, the band leads us, we sing songs that should include a little hand clapping. And it's the same few who engage. It's, it's a, amusing, really, to watch. Psalm 47, here's an imperative, a command. Clap your hands, all you nations. Woo, listen to this. Shout to God with cries of joy. Now, that's way outside the box, isn't it? Psalm 98, 8. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Isaiah 55 You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in the singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now the image of joy and blessing is so powerful because we know that they can't literally do it. The rivers don't clap, the trees don't clap. It's not happening. The gospel is so rich That the 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 psalmist says that the creation bursts forth in worship in the same way as God's people do in singing and clapping because we're a singing people, we're a clapping people, a shouting people. So we're going to practice. You ready? You ready for this? Let's give the Lord a clap offering. You ready? A little applause. All right, now in India, when you walk up to the front of the stage, the speaker shouts a hallelujah, and guess what they do in return? They shout it back, so we're going to do that as well. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord, you're getting it, at least on one Sunday. (laughs) You know, it's one thing to clap, but this hand-raising seems a little radical, doesn't it? We'll look like Pentecostals pretty soon. And, and, but beloved, it's, it's scriptural and maybe a necessary posture towards God in prayer. The, the scripture gives three reasons for raising our hands toward God in prayer. One is the priestly blessing that we receive at the end of the service each week. And so we're to raise our hands as we get blessed. Secondly is an attitude of prayer and supplication and neediness. It says that Solomon prayed that way when he dedicated the, ch- the 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 temple. It's like a child needing comfort to be picked up. We raise our hands to the Lord in neediness. It also is a very practical way. to keeps corporate prayers from being too long because <laughs> the the leader can't keep their hands up that long. Here's what Psalm 28 says: Hear my cry for mercy there it is psalm 28 there it is psalm 28 i'm going to read psalm 28 2 hear my cry for mercy as i call to you for help as i lift up my hands toward your most holy place so you see the psalmist is crying out for help and then how about first timothy 2 8 paul says this i desire that men in every place The men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The third reason that we lift hands is an attitude of giving your all in worship. Psalm 134 verse 2 says this, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise Jehovah. That's Psalm 134 verse 2. It's an imperative. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Nehemiah 8 and verse 6, Ezra praised Jehovah, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and they responded, Amen! Amen! And then they bowed down and worshipped Jehovah with their faces to the ground. You know, for those who raise their hands and worship and prayer, they'll tell you that there's an emotional release that goes with it perhaps reforming we're the reformed perhaps reforming our lives to the scriptures means some growth and a little risk-taking in this area the next thing I wanted to show you the second thing is David's delight and his help from the Lord look again at verse 5 of 63 he says my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. For David, even worship in the desert is like a wedding feast, it's like a Thanksgiving banquet. David was very familiar with the daily, the weekly, the monthly, and the yearly sacrifices made in the tabernacle. It's all listed out in the law of Moses. Three times a year, the people were to gather in Jerusalem for a week of feasting. They were either to bring their own food or they were to bring their tithe and buy whatever they wanted to eat or to drink and to have great joy before the Lord. Every month for the new moon, they were to have a feast celebrating God's goodness in the cycle of life. And the new moon feast at the king's house was always a huge party because the kingdom is a feast. So spiritual satisfaction is regularly pictured in the scriptures as a full belly And and Revelation 19 reveals the kingdom as a wedding feast. We just studied that in our marriage series this last couple weeks. Communion that we have on Sunday morning is a picture of that heavenly feast in God's presence. And David knew that feasting was God's invention. And it teaches us how delightful and pleasurable our Lord is because the kingdom is a party. And 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 not not, you know, sometimes there's a false comparison uh, for, for churches that are loud and noisy compared to ours, and they'll talk about you're louder and noisier at a Georgia game than you are in worship. Well, we don't want to compare worship with the ruckus and tailgating at a Georgia game. There's a better comparison. The image that the scriptures use is a wedding feast. Let, let me tell you, after worshiping with some of you, I don't want to go to your weddings. <laughs> I mean I can't imagine the reception being any good at all. <laughs> In fact, it might be boring. I, I remember I did a wedding twenty-five, almost thirty years ago. And and the parents of the bride were so convinced that it would be holy to be sober. And I don't mean drinking wise, I mean just to be somber. So there was no music at the reception. There was no dancing, there was no singing. We sat at tables. There was some food, not very much and <laughs> and there was some food, and they handed out slips of paper with the gifts of the spirit on there, and we were supposed to write little notes to to, to the to the bride and groom. I think you know as a young pastor in my thirties, I was willing to do that, but i I'm not willing to do that anymore. So if that's what you want to do for your reception, ask Henley to do the wedding. I'm not, I'm not even going to come. But you see, as great as food is, there, there's something better. Knowing God is better. David picks this metaphor because we all love a feast. But loving Jesus, beloved, is a feast. And such knowledge always breaks out in singing because we're a singing people. A great party always includes music and dancing and food and drinking and great joy. That's the picture of worship in the scriptures. And... And and but you see, the problem here is that David's not at a party. He's remembering the party. He's in the wilderness. Maybe you can relate with that. Maybe you're in the wilderness. Da- David, David's thoughts turn from the sanctuary and the palace back to where he is at night in the desert with God's people. And the stars are so close. And his, and his mind and heart are reaching out to God and he's laying there wide awake in the middle of the night with death at his door. Like he has many times in the palace thinking about betrayal and all the troubles that a king faces. How amazed this shepherd boy must have been to be the king of Israel. David is God's king and Israel's shepherd. And who would have ever thought that this eighth son of eight sons would be God's anointed? He he was still a teenager when God chose him and anointed him. Here's what he prays in 2 Samuel 7. He says, then King David went in and sat before Jehovah. And he said, who am I, O Lord Jehovah? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David never lost the wonder of what it means to be God's man. I wonder what you're remembering in the middle of the night and thinking about these days. Maybe it's the economy. We've all lost about 20% of our net worth this year. Maybe it's rebellious kids, your finances, your job, your broken family. Maybe it's your loneliness, your many troubles, your secret fears. What David is remembering is that God is his help. David knows that regardless of how his situation ends up, whether Absalom comes and kills him or he gets his throne back, either way he knows that since he belongs to God, that he is under Jehovah's care. Beloved, a life of worship, a steady diet of the Psalms will turn your fears in the middle of the night to the majesty of God and and you will remember how often God has delivered you and met your deepest needs. And such memories will bring you joy in singing as it did David. Prayer is God's antidote for fear. And the good news of the gospel is that God includes you and me in the kingdom and he calls us sons. I mean, really? He's including us? We're from West Georgia. It's like being from Nazareth. He wants us to be his children. Can you believe that? That alone is a reason to clap and sing. And David says to cling. The picture that comes to mind is a parent holding a toddler. You ever watch that? The toddler is holding on for dear life to their mom or dad, grabbing at the shirt or the arm or what, the hair, whatever they can get a hold of. But that's not keeping the baby there, is it? No, it's that right hand holding the baby up. It's that right hand that's taking care and giving real comfort to that baby. And, and, and so do you see the gospel circle here, my friends? Worship leads to thinking about God's majesty and help, which leads to more worship, which of course leads to more clinging, and it grows your faith. We hold on by thinking about him. It's quite good. Well, here's a third thing I wanted to show you this morning, and that's David's deliverance. Here's verse 9. He says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the land. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. That's not good. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You know, it's entirely possible that David will lose this battle. The numbers are on Absalom's side, and and so is the element of surprise. So, So David thinks about ultimate things because that's what really counts. If God is his prize, then what about the enemies of God? Well, their future's not bright. He remembers that in the watches of the night. They will die as they lived, in betrayal, and by the sword. And that's what happened to Absalom. Even though David wanted to show his son mercy, Absalom was still cut down by the sword. Here's what the Lord Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear God, you see. Then he gives comfort. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs, go back, please. There you go. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you who are more valuable than many sparrows. I've always thought that would be a good name you know in in english these names don't work out very well but to name your kid many sparrows wouldn't that remind them constantly of their value to the lord here's the truth about ultimate things the worst the enemies of god david could do was to kill him but you see for the believer that simply means you'll be in heaven with jesus So there's no reason to be afraid of those who kill or hurt or even demolish the economy. Instead, fear God. And what does that fear lead to? God's help, God's care, God's love, his power, his mercy, a satisfied soul, a spiritual feast. Isn't that good? But there is bad news. The bad news is if, you, if you're thankful for God's gifts but you don't cherish and enjoy him then your thirst will never be quenched and you may be lost in the wilderness. And the good things that God gives you may just be idols that keep you from Jesus. That's really bad. And if you're living regularly in fear or worry and you lay awake at night turning your problems over in your mind, and then you don't turn your, then turn your mind to God, to the God of all help, well, then your fear will remain. And you'll stay discouraged out in the wilderness, and your life will cycle from fear to fear instead of from hope to hope. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sins of fear, fearfulness or being far away or having a thankless heart. And he rose from the dead to give us eternal life, lasting peace and real righteousness that makes us welcome at his feast and gives us minds that remember his goodness. If you will turn from your sin and your fears and trust in christ alone then he will give you that peace and satisfaction and you will sing in, under the shadow of his wings i love what david says in verse eight he says my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me and, and, and do you see what this is about you know who god's right hand is right that's the lord jesus It is Jesus and all that he has done for you, beloved, that holds you up. He even gives you his spirit so that you are never alone. How about that? Here's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Now you can put up Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, the Lord has already given us his best gift. But gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Beloved, that's what we remember in the night. That's what we're giving thanks for in a a Sunday evening service. That's the memory that we come to Sunday morning worship with where we can hardly hold back from clapping and singing. That he is giving us all things in Christ Jesus. That will bring forth genuine love and adoration and enjoyment of God, even in the wilderness. David's delight was that his friend, his God, his Savior, his right hand revealed himself in power and great glory in the midst of desert worship, and he will for you as well, beloved. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. And let's raise our hands as we pray. Our Father, we honor you this morning for your word. It's a delight to us to study it and read it and to meditate on your goodness to us, on your tender mercies in the midst of pain and trouble for those who belong to you. And Father, your word is a call to repentance to those who are far away. Bring them back, Lord. Bring us back. And Father, your word is only worthwhile because it points to the true word, which is the Lord Jesus. So Lord Jesus, we honor you this morning as our king. We rejoice with, with uh, King David and singing the songs of, of Zion and singing from the Psalms. And we praise you this morning because you're our king and our God and you meet with us in desert places and all God's people said amen